0: I invite you today to turn in your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago as we have been studying through John's gospel with this theme, life in Jesus, the Son of God. And if you haven't picked up on that theme that comes up time and again throughout the book of John, that's very, very prominent and prevalent that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in Jesus Christ alone, we can have life. And all throughout chapter 8, we've seen this follow-up here uh, at, the, at the, the Feast of Tabernacles. As Jesus has talked about how he is the light of the world. Um, he talked about um, how, how he uh, is the only place that people can turn to and trust in him. That he is the only source of eternal life. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at um, the difference between being a son of God or a son of, of the devil, of Satan... Uh, Because there were those who were there who professed belief in Jesus, but their faith wasn't genuine, and so Jesus is challenging them on this and talking about it's more than just these these credentials they may have as Jews or these actions they may do, but it's about their heart and their trust and their belief. And so we're going to wrap up this chapter today. We're going to wrap up this, uh, this, this dialogue that Jesus had with these, again, uh, with him reemphasizing who he is and their need to trust in him. And, and that if they, if they do, we're going to see there's a, a message here in this, in this text today that all those who place their trust in Jesus Christ have life eternal. And we'll see that in the statement that Jesus makes. I invite you to follow along as we read John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? who Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We'll look here today at this idea of those who are gathered there, listening to Jesus and talking with him, dishonoring the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you that Jesus Christ came and revealed himself as the word incarnate, as God. And he came to give himself as a ransom for many. Lord, all who trust in Jesus Christ will live for eternity. And for that, we give honor and praise and glory to you. And we ask that over the next few minutes, you would quiet our hearts and minds. You would help us to to set aside the distractions of the things we may have to do later today or that are still going in our minds from what we did yesterday or this past week or even this morning. And help us instead to focus on your word and use your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts today, to show the one who may be here today without you their need for a savior, to show Christians today the need to set aside sin and live in the power of the Holy Spirit for your honor and glory, to burden our hearts for a lost and dying world with whom we have the mission and the commission to share the good news of the gospel. Lord, above all, may you help me not to get in the way of what you want to do here today. May you receive the honor and the glory and the praise. your name we pray, amen. More often than we like to admit, we think we know more than we really do. How many times have we had to redo a project take back a statement we made, or humbly admit an error to another person because we insisted that our way, our ideas, and our opinions were right. The better question is, how many times do we fail to make it right because we are too prideful to correct the wrong that we've committed? And how many times in the day and age we live in have we found out we're wrong a lot faster because we have Google that tells us all the answers, right? We had this conversation yesterday at lunch. Uh, Caleb was sharing some fact that he had learned, or dinner, I can't remember when it was, and we said, well, I don't know if that's right, and you type into Google, oh, that was, that was right. So you remember when Google wasn't a thing and we knew everything, you know, that was just, you know, how many things did our parents tell us growing up, that they didn't really know, but we couldn't check it out, right? And in some cases, when we get things wrong and we insist on it, even though we're wrong, it isn't a big deal, right? I mean, it may mean things that, that they weren't done the way maybe they should have been done, or maybe we thought something that wasn't really true, but it's really of little consequence. Other times in our lives, we insist on being right, even when we're wrong, and that can hurt our relationships, it damages our friendships, it damages familial ties, and more in our lives simply because we insist on my way and my opinion. However, There is still even a greater area where this type of thinking has more abundant consequences. And that's what we think about Jesus. And here at the close of John 8, Jesus continues to confront those who oppose him. He strips away their preconceived notions about himself and about themselves. And he shows them their need to trust in him genuinely and completely to place their faith in him. Yet they continue to hold on to their own ideas, even if it will cost them eternity. And so Jesus declares his deity once again, even in the face of those, as we see in the title here of today, of those who are dishonoring the Son of God. And what we see in this passage is that because Jesus is the self-existent, all-powerful God, he alone can offer eternal life, and is thus worthy of my honor and trust. Jesus makes no bones about it. Jesus makes, uh, no, doesn't dance around anything. He declares who he is, that he is the self-existent, all-powerful God. And because he declares that, and because he is who he says he is, he's the only place we can run. He's the only place we can look to to gain eternity and he's the only one worthy of our complete honor and trust as God. So let's look. There's just a few brief points here as we look to this passage today to see how these Jews, these religious leaders of Israel, and those who had even professed some type of, of, of false belief in him, we see the three areas in which they are dishonoring Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Number one, in, in verses 48 and 50, through 51, we see that they are dishonoring his origins. They're dishonoring from where he came. And they do this, first of all, by launching personal attacks in verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, "'Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon?" So Jesus has exposed the hearts of all those who have gathered around to debate him. He has laid bare their darkest intentions. He has talked about here in this passage about how they intended to murder him. And we talked about how since John chapter 5 and the healing of the pool of Bethesda, this has been the case or or the way that, that all of these religious leaders have been going. He has revealed their false professions of faith. He has declared, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he's declared them to be children of the devil and not truly the spiritual children of Abraham that they they claimed they were. And all the while, he, as God incarnate, has given sound argument and inexcusable proof. He has pointed them to the only hope that they have of eternal life, and that's himself. And now the religious leaders have no recourse. And what Jesus has said is not only sound, it is true. It is true. And they have no counter to his arguments. They cannot refute his words. What he has said is undeniably the truth. So therefore they refer to, or they, or they, they fall back on to a, another tactic. They resort to what we would call today ad hominem. Now ad hominem is just a fancy Latin phrase and it means to the person. And it means that what one does is he takes his attacks that he is trying to make against his opponent's points and he refocuses them from the points to instead attack the person who is giving those points or making this case. It's called an ad hominem fallacy or an ad hominem attack. And you see this all the time in our society and the culture we live in. I mean, social media is full of the ad hominem fallacy. How many of you have ever found yourself doing the horrible thing of getting in a battle on somebody on social media, right? And it just, or you read them. Maybe you're like me and you read them for entertainment sometimes, right? They degrade rather quickly because no one's interested in actually refuting the arguments or the points. They're just there to say, well, da, 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 you know, they're just making fun of people and they're, and they're tearing them down. I have some wonderful news for you this morning. Uh, over the next few months, the political ads are going to ramp up on your TV again. Aren't you excited? And you know what they're going to be full of? Ad hominem attacks. You're not going to hear anything about policies. You will every once in a while, but you're going to hear all about how horrible this other person is, and I can't believe you would ever think about voting for him because he does this and he does that, or she does this and she does that. It's ad hominem. And so here... The ones who have been exposed by Jesus and, and thus have been convicted of their sin now turn their ire not against what he has said, but against Jesus himself. And what they do here is they hurl at, at him what would be the most culturally awful insult they could. In verse 48, what do they call him? They call him a Samaritan. Now Maybe when we sit in Beaverton, Michigan in 2023, we think, wow, that's, that's the best you could come up with, Right? It is. It really is the worst, the best of the worst that someone in that culture and that society could come up with. Now, in John chapter 4, we discuss the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, but I'll briefly recover some of those points here to help us understand the context. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as physical and spiritual half breeds. So the Samaritans are descendants from those. People, those Jews who intermarried with foreigners during the exile when Assyria had taken over the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. They had resettled foreigners in the land, and these Jews, against what God had said, had intermarried with them. And so the Samaritans are descendants from this intermarrying. And so when the Jews then later, after um, the, the Persian Empire had taken over, and Cyrus had released the Jews, had been taken from the southern kingdom back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans had come to try to help to rebuild the temple. And in that moment, the rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans, it ignited. And that hatred that had begun then still burned in the hearts of the people in Jesus' day. In fact, Though Samaria was located, the area of Samaria was located in the middle of the nation of Israel, there were some Jews, if they needed to to go from the north to the south or from the south to the north, would avoid the area of Samaria altogether. Likewise, some Samaritans would deny hospitality towards any Jews who dared to travel through that area. And so as one author said it, by calling Jesus a Samaritan... The Jewish leaders were in effect labeling him a false teacher and a traitor to Israel. And and understand that in in a culture such as the Jewish culture, an Eastern culture, uh, where where shame is a big deal, what the the Jewish leaders here are doing by insulting Jesus' heritage are attempting to heap shame on him. They're attacking him as a person. They can't say anything about what he said. So they said, well, you're, you're a Samaritan. And then they go beyond that and say, and you, you're you demon-possessed. Now, this passage in John is the only time in the gospel we have recorded where Jesus is called a Samaritan. But this is not the first or the last time in the gospels that Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. In, in the blindness of their hearts and in willful ignorance, these men attribute his words to that of one doing the work of Satan. They heard the words of Jesus speaking right to them, and they didn't like what they said, what they heard. They didn't like the conviction of their hearts, and so they struck out against him. And so they sought their dismissal then, the dismissal of those words, through characterizing Jesus as untrustworthy and blasphemous. As you read that, you think, wow, that's pretty serious. Do you understand that people still do this with the gospel today? People still, when they don't like the message of what they hear, strike out against the person who gives the message. Believe it or not, as a pastor, I have received sometimes criticism myself because someone came to our church and they heard a message and they say things like, you know, the message you preached today should have been a little more appropriate for X, Y, Z. Or, you know, the message today, uh, it should have been different. And I'll tell you what my answer is every time. I say, I'm sorry, I'm just going to preach the word of God. Your issue isn't with me, it's with what God said. And that's exactly what we can say when we give the gospel to people. When people are confronted with the truth of God's word, it's not uncommon that they become uncomfortable with what they hear. That is the conviction of God. Because God in his grace convicts mankind of sin. And then he calls for and empowers us to respond to that conviction. But many will not respond and instead will turn away in hardness of heart. And in the meantime, while they're turning away in their hardness of heart, they're looking for an excuse to flush away that which they've heard. So they say things like, well, the message, that that just wasn't really polished. You know, I really didn't like when the pastor did this or the pastor did that. Or, you know, that's awful judgmental coming from you. Or, you know, I just don't think God is that way. These are the types of attacks and things you'll hear. And you have to remember something. If you're giving the gospel and someone attacks you or responds, lashes out against you for sharing the gospel with them, while you are faithfully proclaiming the truth of God, you don't need to take that personally. If you are proclaiming your own brand of truth and you're skipping the word of God, then sure, you should take that personally. Okay, If you're out there uh, standing out on an island saying, this is what the Bible says, and the Bible doesn't say that, I'm going to tell you right now, that attack isn't against God, it's against you. But if you are seeking to give the truth of God, with the love of God, to the best of your ability with God's help, that attack that comes against the gospel isn't an attack against you, it's against God. And any visceral action you may face has everything to do with what he is doing in their hearts. Jesus, the son of God and God himself, faced persecution, marginalization, and personal attack. Should we as his followers expect any less? And though the Jews would launch these attacks, we see they don't land any hits. Jesus in verses 49 through 51 shows us the impervious defense that he has as the son of God Jesus answered I do not have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me and I do not seek my own glory there is one who seeks and judges most assuredly I say to you if anyone keeps my word he shall never see death Jesus had every right and all authority to refute everything said against him you understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, had every right and all authority to look at these people and say, and just, and just come out and completely embarrass everything that they've said, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even touch the comment they made about him being a Samaritan. Instead, he continues to proclaim the truth. The greatest defense against the lies of Satan is the truth of the Word of God. Jesus is the living word. So what does he say? Well, he simply states, I don't have a demon. I am not an agent of Satan. Now they are children of the devil, as he said in the last statement, the last passage. He is the son of God seeking to honor his father. He says, I honor my father and you dishonor me and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus did not spend his life and ministry seeking to build up his own personal following or his prestige. That is not what Jesus' life was about. Now, there were others who did that. And you know where the others who did that, where they were standing that day? They were standing all around Jesus. The religious leaders of Israel kept the law of God for their own pride, pride and their own exaltation. They were very self-righteous. They were full of themselves. It was about amassing themselves, these works, and everyone else looking up to them. But that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus was about giving honor and glory to God the Father. Jesus sought to do the work that he was sent to do. So the question is, what is Jesus' mission from God the Father? Well, We can find that in various scripture passages. I'm going to take you very quickly through a few of them. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or you can go all the way back to the Old Testament where Isaiah the prophet says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That doesn't sound like someone who's trying to make a name for himself, does it? That's the Messiah. That's exactly what Isaiah predicted Jesus would be. Or in Matthew 1, 21, when the birth of Jesus predicted, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Or what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven and took on the role of a servant. The creator became the creation and as such served the creation. Why? Because of God's great love and His perfect plan of redemption for mankind. So therefore, to dishonor Jesus Christ is to dishonor God the Father. The one these opponents claimed to belong to was the very one they were dishonoring. And this would not do. Why? Because what Jesus said, that the Father would honor the Son. Okay, now Jesus does not seek his own glory, right? He made that very clear. But he says, in the end of verse 50, there is one who seeks and judges. The idea is there is one who seeks the glory of Jesus and judges. This one who seeks that. Is God the Father the ultimate judge? It didn't matter what people said about Jesus. It didn't matter what people accused Jesus of doing. It didn't matter what they believed about him. One day, they would all stand before the judge. And when they did so, all things would be made right. All lies will be exposed. Jesus would one day be vindicated. And so that leads us to Jesus' statement in verse 51. That if Jesus is doing the will of his Father, and he is, then Jesus is the one we must trust in because of what he says. He says, most assuredly, and again, this is that phrase that John uses, you may have it truly, truly, or verily, verily in your passage before you, but the idea is, pay attention, this is an important statement, this is something that holds up under the highest scrutiny. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus reemphasizes here there is a need for a personal relationship with himself for eternal life. He promises that the one who keeps his word, the the phrasing here is he will never see death, that that, that he will never die. What he's talking about here is eternal spiritual life found only in himself. And in order to obtain this, one must keep Jesus' word. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means you have to have personal belief in Jesus. It requires faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And number two, then, it results in the life of a disciple who obeys God. It is a positive response to Jesus' revelation, both in attitude towards him and the actions we take. This is the one who is assured salvation. However, the Jews are not satisfied with these things And their dishonor continues. Not only then they dishonor his origins from where Jesus comes, but number two, they dishonor his work in verses 52 through 58. And we see the response in 52 and 53 where they they ask in such a way, Who are you? Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets... Uh, and the prophets are dead, who do you make yourself out to be? So in John 8, 43, if you want to kick your eyes up the page there a little bit, Jesus said this, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And here the Jews, the Jewish leadership proves this once again. They do not have eyes of faith in Jesus. Therefore, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They're limited to the most literal interpretation of his words. So because of that, what do they do? They double down on their accusation of demon possession. And the words of verses 52 and 53 are are accusatory and abusive in nature towards Jesus. They appeal to the greatest examples that they have as a history as a nation. They talk about Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and they talk about the prophets of old whose, whose sayings are preserved, their writings are preserved. And then what do they say? Well, all of these people have died. None of them were physically present that day or today, right, for that matter. Therefore, they reason with their temporal earthly reasonings, how can Jesus be telling the truth? Because what he said is that those who trust in him, those who follow him will not face death. Yet Abraham, who is called the friend of God, or the prophets who have given the word of God, they're all what? They're all dead. And again, in the most literal sense. And that's how they're looking at it. Well, this guy must think he's someone special. And the question they asked, that first question in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? That's again in the Greek, intended to to expect a negative response. No, I am not greater than Abraham is the expected response. It's a rhetorical question. It is very reminiscent of the question that was asked in John chapter 4 by the woman at the well where she said, are you greater than our father Jacob? And ironically, though it is expected to be negative, what is the overwhelming answer? Are you greater than Abraham? The answer is yes, he is. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is Abraham's hope. Who does Jesus make himself out to be? Jesus makes himself out to be the Savior of the world. He is the promised deliverer, and all who trust in him will indeed not taste death. Oh, yes. The physical bodies of all will one day pass away. The frame that you and I live in is wearing out. You ever feel that? You ever feel like that that body you live in is is wearing out? Some of us have more mileage or brokenness than others. And one day, should the Lord tarry, our physical eyes will close for the last time. And just as physical death is the separation of the soul from the body, there is also something to be warned about, and that is spiritual death in which a soul is separated for eternity from God. But Jesus promises a blessed hope here to those who trust in him. Because the one who commits his faith to Jesus does not awaken in eternity separated from God in an awful place of torment and punishment, but he instead opens his eyes to behold his God. That's what Jesus says here. One author said it this way, a pastor. He said, this one does not see death, he sees him. What a glorious thing. Death is not annihilation, my friend. It is the beginning of your eternity. The scriptures are very clear. And you will spend that eternity either in punishment for sin or in the presence of the Savior. And the ones who are standing before Jesus that day have challenged his identity. Their physical eyes and their prideful hearts compared Jesus to the greatest men of their history And they denied that he could be any better than these men. True, genuine faith in Jesus goes beyond what physical eyes can see. And it looks to the voices of the past used by God and proclaims of Jesus as his disciples proclaimed in John chapter 6. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the response of faith. Jesus now explains yet again who he is and what is known by him and what is not known by those who are around him that day as he continues talking about Abraham's hope in verses 54 through 57. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? So once again, Jesus denies his own claims to honor. He, he makes it very clear. He does not honor himself. It is God the Father who, who has done and will continue to do that in his life and ministry. The Father enabled the Son to do mighty works. That is the Father honoring the Son. The Father highlighted Jesus' virtues before others. The Father audibly confirmed Jesus' identity from heaven at certain times in his ministry. But the greatest of these acts was yet to come. The greatest thing that God, the Father, would ever do to vindicate and honor Jesus Christ the Son is resurrect him from the dead. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the vindication of who Jesus is. However, Jesus exposes the religious leaders for their failure to really follow God. They claim to follow God, yet they don't even know him. And here in verse 55, you have here over and over, you and I have here in the English, this idea of known and know, but but really what's going on here is Jesus is juxtaposing two ideas of knowledge here in this verse. Because there are two words that are used in the Greek text here and they communicate two different types of knowledge. So I'm going to, to try to help us walk through and understand what Jesus is saying here. The Jews claimed to have a personal, experiential knowledge of God. Jesus says here in verse 55, yet you have not known him. And that word in the Greek talks about an experiential knowledge of God. Now, this Personal, experiential knowledge of God is something that comes through observation and a relationship with God. And this is the type of knowledge that not only were they to have of God, but you and I, this is the type of knowledge that you and I would have of God. We must come to know him personally by experiencing him in our lives. And how do we do that? We read the word of God. We trust what it says. We follow him. We pray. We we see God work in our lives. This is how we come to know him. And if I asked you today, how many of you have come to know God through these types of experiences in your life of reading his word, of seeing him work, probably most, if not all of us in this room could raise our hands and say, I've come to know God because that's how we, we, we come to know him. We have to experience these things because we don't just know them intuitively. But Jesus says, That these people who said they knew God didn't know him at all. Because if they really did know him, they would have received Jesus' word. And so what Jesus does is he says, I have knowledge that's vastly superior to yours. You continue on in verse 5, Jesus says, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Okay, when Jesus uses these words here, I know, it's a totally different Greek word. Jesus' word that he uses for the way he knows God is an intuitive, characteristic knowledge. Jesus knows God not because he has come to know through an experience. He knows God because he is God. Does that make sense? Jesus knows God inherently. Why? Because as God the Son, he is one with God the Father. And Jesus says, if I denied that, saying I don't know him in that way, I would be a liar. Why? Because he is God. And he would be lying just as the Jews are lying by by claiming to know that God through experience. What do these ones who gathered around Jesus know? Well, they know the law of God, right? In and out, inside and out, they know his law. They know the history of God's works. They know God's promises. You know who they don't know? They don't know God. And there's a big difference between knowing a lot about God and truly knowing God. I've met a lot of people in my life who know a lot about God. They have been in church since they could remember anything. As my dad would say, they were drugged. They were drugged to church every Sunday. And I'm telling you what, you open up the scripture and they can tell you, well, that happened and that happened and that happened and this is what God said and they can repeat scripture they learned in a kid's program or that they've heard all their life and they've even read the word of God for themselves. But when it comes down to it and you ask them about a relationship with God or you seek to know more, they don't really know God. There's a difference. There's a difference between knowing what the Bible says And knowing God in your heart. And don't get me wrong, folks, you can't know God if you don't know who He is. Right? You have to have the Word of God to know God. But if you don't truly trust and follow what the Bible says, you don't know God. The religious leaders knew a lot about God, they knew what the law said about themselves. They knew what God said about sin, but they never connected the dots to say, we need the Savior, and he's standing right here. And as Jesus stood before them, showing them who he was, they continued to oppose him. They were nothing like their great father Abraham. Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You say, well, Abraham's been dead a while when Jesus gave that. Yeah, he's been dead almost two millenniums since Jesus, when Jesus is there. What does that mean? What did Abraham rejoice in? Well, he rejoiced in the promise of the Messiah. Abraham saw the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaac, that God promised him he would give him a son. And by faith, then he saw a day when the promise would be fulfilled that in his descendants, as God had said, all nations of the earth would be blessed. By contrast, the ones who were before Jesus this day wanted to murder the deliverer. They were not happy to see him, but they lashed out against him. And it's almost like, are you sure about that? They proved the point again in verse 57. They look at a man standing before him, and they balk at the words he says. How could he have seen Abraham. Abraham's been dead for nearly two millennia, and Jesus is not even 50 years old. Now, it is interesting where they said, you, how have you seen Abraham? You do notice, by the way, Jesus never says he saw Abraham. We'll talk about that in just a second. What does he say? He rejo- Abraham rejoiced to see my day, right? But they, they changed Jesus' words again. Abraham instead rejoiced to see Jesus prophetically. And once again, the question is, here, is raised here. Who are you? Who are you to tell us we don't know God? Who are you to tell us we're children of the devil? Who are you to tell us that you know God intuitively? Who are you to tell us that we aren't like Abraham? Do you understand this is, this is the attitude of what we read in verse 57? That everything that's gone on in this passage and the passage before all comes to a head. Who do you make yourself out to be? You've told us we don't know God. You told us we're children of the devil. You told us we're not children of Abraham. You told us who this is and that is. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answers that question in verse 58, doesn't he? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, there's that phrase again. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There is no missing the point in this verse. Jesus makes here a full and complete claim to deity. How could Jesus see Abraham? Because he was God. and He is God. And Jesus, notice he does not claim to just merely been around in Abraham's day. You notice that? He doesn't say, well, before Abraham was, I was, right? No, what he does is he claims transcendence over time, space, space creation, eternity, he claims to be the I am. And what you read here is the, is the special name that God gave for himself to his people, that is the name Yahweh, I am. It highlights God's self-existent and transcendent nature. And what Jesus is saying is that he is preeminent above all. That he is not just a temporal being, he is the eternal, omnipotent God in human form. Thus, he has all authority, he speaks all truth, and he rightfully exercises all power. He is who he says he is. So the answer to the question, who do you make yourself out to be? I am God. That's what Jesus says. And as God, Jesus is due our honor and our trust and our service. He is the one who can deliver us from death and into the great kingdom of God. He is our hope. So this is where this whole chapter is driven. This is where all of these conversations have come to. That Jesus is bringing them to the end of themselves. Why? To show them who he is. And wouldn't we just love to read in verse 59, and they all fell down and worshipped him and trusted in him as Savior. Right? We, we could give an invitation, right? But is that what happens? No, they persist. And in verse 59, we read them dishonoring his identity first in their violent intentions. Then they took up stones to throw at him. Jesus' clear claim to deity now brings everything to a head. All Jesus' words have hit home. All their intentions and true selves have been exposed. Jesus' true identity is shown again. And here, as is so often the case in the book of John, he drives us to this point. You have to make a choice. How many times have we seen that? You have to make a decision. You either accept Jesus Christ and trust him in faith or you reject him. You dismiss him as a liar and a blasphemer. And the ones that Jesus spoke to that day, they made their choice. Their antagonistic, defensive words and spirits now culminate in violent intentions. And they decide, you know what? He's a blasphemer. He speaks these things that are not true. And so according to Leviticus twenty four sixteen, they now take the law up into their own hands. And they follow that prescription. They begin to gather stones. Okay? This is a little more serious than Tomatoes. What are they going to do with the stones? They're going to kill him. They're going to stone him to death. The ongoing construction work in the temple that Herod had undertaken meant that there were plenty of these stones in that area where Jesus was. They are prepared to take such action. And what are they doing? They're embracing a complete rejection of Jesus as God's son. They are so adamantly opposed to truth that they would kill the living word. But even as they prepare to act on their sinful impulses, Jesus once again, as we close out this chapter, shows us his power in his miraculous departure. Read the last part of verse 59 with me. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The crowd is stirred up, violent intentions have been roused, and the weapons of choice have even been gathered. But even this cannot harm It cannot cause harm to Jesus outside of God's perfect plan. God the Father had a perfect plan for Jesus, God the Son's life and death. And the time of Jesus' death had not come. And so, it says, Jesus hid himself and slipped away unharmed. We read that and we go, what happened? You and I don't know what happened. I mean, there was a bunch of people around. They all wanted to kill him. I'll tell you what happened. God did a miraculous work. Not a single rock was thrown. Not a single being was allowed the nerve to throw that first stone. But the message of this chapter and the message of this last passage rings loud and clear even to this day. And it's not a very encouraging message, is it? It's a message of rejection. Rejection of Jesus is not just a dangerous thing, my friend, it is fatal. For without Jesus, you will never see eternal life in the presence of God. I thought about that this week. What does rejection of Jesus look like? And this is an excellent example, right? I mean, this is, this is like, wow, that is, that's rejection, But it doesn't always look that way, does it? Could we argue that there's perhaps a more deadly form of rejection that creeps into our hearts? That we hear the word of God and we, hear the, we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we kind of shrug our shoulders and go, eh, I'm good. Right? Does that seem very antagonistic to you? Well, no. I mean, we live in a free country. You can believe what you want, right? Right. But you know what that still is? It's still rejection. It's still turning your, your back on who Jesus is. By, by, by hearing the message of redemption found only in Jesus, by, by seeing who Jesus is, and kind of shaking your head or walking away or going, well, maybe that's really not for me. You have done just what these guys have done that day. You have rejected Jesus. A facade of neutrality on Jesus is rejection of Jesus. A professed belief in Jesus, just so somebody will get off your case, when you don't really believe it, is rejection of Jesus. Just as much as screaming in somebody's face to get out of my face, and I don't want to hear what you have to say, that's just as much rejection as anything else. So we have to come to the point in our lives we face this decision. Passivity and indifference toward Jesus is still Rejection. Salvation means completely embracing who Jesus is. And, and the results are just as evident as the rejection of this passage. When you look at rejection, I mean, here, you look at it in this passage. They rejected Jesus, so what did they do? They physically, what they do? They bent down and they picked up stone. We're going to kill him, right? Or you look at those who reject Jesus today and you look at their lives and, the, and sin runs rampant. There's no conviction, there's no sorrow, there's no guilt over sin. Why? Because they have rejected Jesus. And just as evident as rejection is in someone's life, so too is salvation just as evident in somebody's life. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it should be apparent. There should be no question. There should be no doubt. Why? Because I'm perfect? No. Because God calls us to consistently live as disciples. The life of a believer is one of growth, change, and an enjoyment of relationship with the self-sufficient, all-powerful God. Do you realize that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a relationship with the one who said, I am. That's who he is. And he's promised you eternal life. Because Jesus is the self-sufficient, all-powerful God. He alone can offer eternal life and is thus worthy of my honor and trust. At the end of this encounter, Jesus left no doubt to those standing before him that day and to us today who he is. The hardness of the hearts of those standing there that day resulted in their active opposition of Jesus. They would not hear his words and thus they could not understand the message of salvation. And here's the deal. We don't know who any of these people are. You notice that? Their names are lost to history. We're not told at the beginning of the chapter. We're not told at the end of the chapter. But assuming they never experienced a dramatic change of heart, I'm going to tell you this right now. They're never going to forget this day. As they suffer eternal punishment for their sin. These ones obviously dishonored the Son of God with such outspoken and violent rejection. And today, many still oppose Jesus. Now, some do so vehemently, others in a quieter manner. And I implore and appeal to you that if you still have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day to come to Him. It will change your eternity and it will change your life. I had a very interesting conversation with somebody last week after the message. And it really made me think. You know, John spends a lot of time exposing and examining those who rejected Jesus. It's a great question. Somebody said, you think there's people who accepted Jesus? I said, yeah, yeah, there is. But John spends a lot of time where? On the, on the rejection. Why? Well, We need this because there are so many in our world who need the truth. There are so many who walk into churches week after week after week, and they have never trusted Jesus. And if you like the idea of Jesus or the benefits that a church gives you, you need to see and embrace Jesus for who he really is. At the same time, there are many, in Jesus' day, there are those, and there are many today, who have accepted Jesus. You have embraced him as Lord and Savior, and you are seeking to live for him. What do you need? My friend, you need the gospel still in your life every day. You need the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, personalized in your life consistently. Jesus lived for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus rose for you, why? So that you may live with him, and you in this earth may live for him. Jesus died for you, that you may have victory over that sin that will not let go. Jesus died for you, that you may forgive your husband or your wife and the fight that you had last night. Jesus died for you that you may raise your kids to the glory of God. Jesus died for you that you may give your neighbor the gospel. You and I need the gospel every day. You and I, if you know Jesus Christ, face physical death with hope for the future. So let's let that affect our present. Let us honor the Son with our trust in our lives. Father, thank you. For Jesus Christ thank you for his life his death his resurrection his ministry to our hearts thank you for salvation for sanctification and Lord we look forward to one day the glorification that we will enjoy in heaven and we pray that today you would do your work in our hearts we ask that you would convict us of sin. Well, there may be one who has heard these words today who needs to trust you. Oh, no, maybe they haven't thrown rocks in your face, but they've kind of shrugged their shoulders and walked away. Lord, may you convict their hearts that this is indeed a rejection of you and show them this will not lead to eternal life, but to eternal damnation. And would I pray that you would give them the grace and the courage and strength to respond to you in salvation. Lord, for Christians that are gathered here today who hear these things, would you use your word in our hearts? Would you show us what you have saved us for? You have saved us from our sin for your glory that we may live for you. Lord, what a wondrous calling it is indeed. It is not an easy thing. It is fraught with challenges at times. But it's the most wondrous thing because in the end we know we'll spend eternity with you. and It will all be worth it. We pray now that you would help us today to do business with you we ask that you would bring us back here tonight to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.